Welcome to Dispatch 7. I originally gave this talk as a commencement address for Global Focus students at Portland Community College. It was a pleasure to speak with them. PCC is an incredible institution which has impacted the lives of people throughout an entire region. At the time I gave the talk, I thought that at this point, nobody would want to hear a word more about COVID-19, but the students had many questions. So I thought it would be worthwhile to explore this issue on the podcast too. Today, I want to talk about pandemics. This is my topic of research. I wrote a book about HIV AIDS in Latin America, for which I did field work in Brazil and Cuba and Mexico. I've studied conspiracy theories with influenza, Zika, and Ebola. I also did field work in wet markets in Hong Kong because of the risks that they create. I'm fascinated by pandemics because of their history, how they've impacted entire civilizations, and because we think about them so little until we have to. A pandemic, the bubonic plague, ended Justinian's ambitions to reconquer Italy and the Western Roman Empire. In the 14th century, the Black Death deeply impacted European nations and helped to undermine feudalism. And yet we often fail to remember pandemics. One famous history about influenza in 1918 is called the Forgotten Pandemic. In Hong Kong, I've seen a park with the busts of the doctors and nurses who died fighting SARS in 2003. I doubt most high school students in the United States have ever heard of SARS. This fall, I'll be in Lisbon, Portugal, researching how the 1918 influenza pandemic impacted Macau. And I want to talk about the lessons of past pandemics and how they relate to COVID. Right now, the situation is difficult in many states in the United States. Just a few months ago, death rates were falling, new cases were dropping, and life was returning to normal. And then came the Delta variant. Things changed, which has lessons for all of us. So I want to start by talking a little bit about what have we learned. And I think one thing that we should realize after our experiences is that technology can matter less than basic public health policy. The countries that did the best for the first year of the pandemic relied less on technology than on border control, contact tracing, and isolation. From New Zealand to Vietnam, this worked pretty well until the arrival of Delta. And throughout history, quarantine has been a key tool. The term quarantine comes from the Italian word for 40. In 14th century Venice, people arriving on ships would need to stay on their ships for 40 days before they were allowed off. In 1918, the last great pandemic killed perhaps 100 million people globally. There were dramatic differences between those places that were able to implement a quarantine and those that didn't. Perhaps the best historical example of this was the case of Western Samoa and American Samoa in 1918. On November 7th, 1918, a single ship from New Zealand, the Toulon, arrived in Western Samoa. This moment started an epidemic. In the space of maybe a month, perhaps one quarter of Western Samoa's population died in the epidemic. The ship's arrival has been a painful memory for over a century on the island, and much of the discussion is focused on whether the colonial administration bears the responsibility for the disaster. Now, in contrast to the experience of Western Samoa, in American Samoa, the local executive decided to implement a quarantine, and it worked. 
the island was spared the disease. Now, the man who led the island at this time was a naval officer who was willing to take extreme measures to implement the quarantine, like sending out shore patrols to keep out refugees fleeing the disaster in other islands. But in general, history has looked favorably on the decision and his leadership since the island escaped the disaster of Western Samoa. Historians have also pointed out that a maritime quarantine in Australia seems to have saved the country from the pandemic until at least 1919, when a less deadly wave arrived. Australia's death rate was ultimately lower than that of many other countries. The point of this history is that quarantine can be a tool that is effective in some circumstances, even with highly contagious respiratory diseases. It can protect isolated communities, buy time to develop healthcare capacity, and ensure that not all places face the pandemic at the same time. The countries that have done best in the pandemic, Australia, Bhutan, New Zealand, Taiwan, are those that quickly implemented rigorous quarantine measures and sustained them. In Bhutan, a 20-something visitor developed COVID after 20 days, so the country implemented a 21-day quarantine for anyone that they allowed in the country. In nations like New Zealand, even citizens could only return once there was a space in a quarantined hotel to receive them. Taiwan's proximity to China and its memory of the 2003 SARS outbreak led it to effectively restrict travel and largely save the nation from the outbreak's human costs. From Taiwan to Australia, these quarantine measures ultimately failed with Delta, but they also bought a great deal of time. Sometimes people say that the human cost of restricted movement is too high, but it's good to be able to compare this cost with what has happened before in vulnerable communities. The memory of the suffering faced in Western Samoa has endured for generations. My larger point is that it's not always technology that matters the most. Adopting the correct public health policies and holding them, even when it's difficult to do so, are what's most important. Another lesson from history is that people always want someone to blame. They don't want to believe that outbreaks are random. I think this is why every pandemic leads to conspiracy theories. So why do conspiracy theories have such enduring power to shape human behavior? You know, my interest in conspiracy theories first began when I was doing fieldwork in Latin America around HIV and AIDS nearly 20 years ago. And during this work, many people told me narratives about how either the virus was created or how wealthy corporations were hiding a cure. I then heard conspiracy theories from my students in my own classes, which suggested that HIV didn't even exist at all. It can be hard now to understand how powerful these conspiracy theories were in an era before effective treatments were globally available for this disease. I had repeated conversations in my classes with students who not only deeply believed that HIV did not exist, but also argued that there was a vast global cover-up of the true origins of AIDS, which they ascribed to pesticides and food additives and recreational drugs. One aspect of conspiracy theories that most interests me is that they are enormously powerful, yet academics almost completely ignore them in their classrooms. I've spent the last decade researching them, and I think that these stories appear whenever people are afraid or feel powerless, 
They also appear when the political system becomes polarized and starts to break down. People feel that if they understand the true reason for the pandemic, then they can have some sense of control. We can see this in every part of the world. For example, early in the pandemic, there were multiple attacks on cell phone towers in England because people read on Facebook that COVID-19 was caused by the introduction of 5G internet. Other parts of the world created other narratives in which technology or an outsider caused the virus. For some strange reason, Bill Gates always seems to be blamed for this. And these narratives matter because they change human behavior. They impact whether people will wear masks, take vaccines, and socially distance. And why would you do any of these things if you think that the real danger is cell phone towers? Another lesson from COVID-19 is that popular trust in government and science matters. We've all seen the ongoing debates about masks in the United States. Early in the pandemic, many states, as well as companies such as Google and Apple, were working on contact tracing apps. But this work was never implemented. In places like Taiwan and Korea, these apps have been fundamental to control COVID-19 spread. But here in the U.S., any discussion of their use faded away by the summer of 2020. It would likely have made a major difference to the pandemic's course in the U.S., but it was politically impossible. If people won't wear masks, they're not going to scan QR codes when they go to a museum or let their phone access their location so that the government and its health agencies can tell who has been close to who. But part of the reason why some countries were able to effectively respond to the pandemic is that people there had greater trust in public health experts and the government in general than we've seen in many states in the United States. Another point that I want to make isn't really mine. It's one that's made by Florian Kramer, who's a professor of vaccinology at the Department of Microbiology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And he argues that we need to create vaccine seed stocks in advance. In order to stamp out an outbreak, we probably need to stamp it out everywhere. And this means that countries will have to share viral samples. And the World Health Organization has tried to do this with avian influenza. And I think it's worth thinking about the experience of this effort with avian influenza, which the World Health Organization, the WHO, has been tracking for many years. So I want to tell a little story that I wrote a paper about. About 12 years ago now, a government official in Indonesia received a phone call from a pharmaceutical company. And this company had developed a vaccine from viral samples that Indonesia had shared with the World Health Organization. Now, Indonesia did not know that the samples it was donating to the World Health Organization were then being shared with big pharmaceutical companies, and it couldn't afford the vaccine that was being offered anyway. So what was the benefit to Indonesia of its cooperation with the World Health Organization? It decided to stop sharing viral samples, and it made a deal with another pharmaceutical company to share samples with it directly in return for the vaccine. Other countries and the World Health Organization said that it couldn't do that. Indonesia basically said that they were just cutting out the middleman. Indonesia knew that if there were a pandemic, wealthy countries already had purchased rights to the vaccines, and they wouldn't receive any. Ultimately, a solution was reached. After a short period, Indonesia returned to viral sample sharing. The World Health Organization created an agreement that guaranteed less wealthy countries some share of vaccine production. We need a system, though, 
a better system to give more vaccines to poor countries, or we're going to face a similar crisis. There is such a system in place now, but it's insufficient. Tomorrow, if there's an outbreak of a disease like Middle East Respiratory Syndrome with a high vitality rate, if we don't have such a structure in place, we're not going just to face a global disaster. We're also going to face a huge geopolitical crisis at the same time. And talking about politics, this brings me to another point that I think we've learned from this pandemic. And that is that the old binary between developed and developing countries doesn't always make much sense. Some nations that are less wealthy, think Vietnam and Thailand, initially succeeded very well in limiting the virus's spread, while some wealthier countries, like the United States and Great Britain or Italy, saw their governments fail to control the outbreak until there had been high numbers of deaths, despite not only their relative wealth, but also sophisticated healthcare systems. In the United States, the CDC and FDA decided not to adopt a test for COVID-19 that was recommended by the World Health Organization. But their effort to create their own test was badly flawed, and when that test proved not to work, it set U.S. testing back perhaps a month or more behind other nations at the most critical moment in the virus's spread within the United States. In contrast, countries that adopted the WHO's recommended test were able to test their populations at scale. In Boston, where I was living at the time, there was a testing debacle after a number of people were infected at a Biogen conference. Even after people reported symptoms and repeatedly sought testing, they were unable to be tested because they did not meet the overly strict criteria that included travel to China or contact with someone from China, which saw the outbreak flare so much that Boston was seriously impacted by the virus early in the pandemic. One Biogen employee even returned to China in order to be tested, where they received a positive COVID test as well as serious legal trouble. Having some of the best biotech companies in the world does not make up for bad public policy. One of the most interesting points for me has been the relative difference in innovation between some developing countries in the United States, which is the home of Silicon Valley. In the U.S., there is still no national contact tracing app. Instead, early in the pandemic, individual states, some of whom you wouldn't expect, like North and South Dakota, at first tried to develop their own. But at a national level, the rate of innovation has been painfully slow. In contrast, some developing countries have moved with amazing speed. What is clear is that the size of a nation's economy does not necessarily correspond to its ability to innovate and adapt. American exceptionalism aside, wealthy nations must overcome their hubris and sense of exceptionalism, which has hampered the response to the pandemic. When developed nations take an interest in the innovations in places from all other countries, their own response will improve. Another point I'd like to make is that people like to forget pandemics very quickly, as happened with SARS in 2003. We can see that with wet markets, and wet markets are places where customers can go to buy poultry or other animals that are slaughtered on the site and prepared for them to come home. And they're popular in China, for example, because there are doubts about the food system and people like to see that their food is truly fresh. To be honest, when I went to the wet markets in Hong Kong, they kind of reminded me of the Saturday street market in uh, Portland. Now, we can't know where COVID-19 originated. Um, 
I've done work in Hong Kong wet markets, though, and I personally believe that it's still a possible place for the pandemic to have begun. That's where the last major coronavirus outbreak started. And if so, that's something remarkable, because think about it. China's ruling political party has immense power, but they never shut down the wet markets, even after the last SARS pandemic. It's possible that the same event happened this time that happened nearly two decades ago. How much suffering could have been avoided if that one event had been prevented? Now, it's also possible that the outbreak was caused by a lab leak. And if you want to know more about that option, I'll include a link in the show notes to a podcast called Origins that explores this issue in depth. But the bigger point is that if this hypothesis proves to be true, it would forever change the conversation about gain-of-function research with infectious disease. This time it was in China, but next time it could be the Amazon or the United States or somewhere else. We need to remember the past, and that means we also need transparency now. And that brings me to the last point, and that is One Health, which is a key idea in global health. One cannot talk about the health of humanity without talking about the general health of the environment. Most pandemics are caused by spillover events in which animals spread a disease to humans. HIV-1 originated as a disease of chimpanzees, which likely spread to humans in Cameroon. Measles evolved from a disease of cattle called rinderpest. Humanity is pushing into rainforests and changing environments from one part of the world to another. There is no discussing human health without discussing animal health, and there's probably no discussing animal health without discussing the environment. One cannot deal with emerging infectious diseases only with vaccines. We have to limit the trade in wild animals for food and medicine. And here I'm really focused on the cross-border trade of animals, which creates markets in which many different animals live together. I'm not really focused here on the local consumption of animals for food. But this will not be the last pandemic. I personally worry much more about MERS and other coronavirus than COVID-19. I've also done work on avian influenza, and some strains have a mortality rate of over 70%. And I don't want to say this, but one of these diseases could emerge even before COVID-19 fades away. We might be able to prevent that, much as COVID-19 might have been prevented with different policies. I don't know who said this first, but pandemics are like earthquakes. You can't know when they will happen, but you can prepare. If we prepare ourselves well, if we plan and prepare viral seed stocks for vaccines, have contact tracing apps and travel regulations in place, if we can reform the World Health Organization and invest in basic public health, the next pandemic doesn't have to happen. COVID-19 didn't have to happen. After all, China was able to control it initially. Quite possibly, if China had ended wet markets or been more careful with lab security, this might never have happened at all. My hope is that with good planning, we won't see another such event in our lifetimes. But this takes work. It doesn't just happen. And memory is essential to this, as is a lack of hubris and a global perspective. Viruses don't know that there are borders. We don't even know if they're truly alive. In the end, nobody is safe until everybody is safe.
Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode. Thank you.